Well, hey, Babel Love listeners. Um, I'm so excited to be with y'all today. Alan is not with us. He is supporting his son on a field trip, which he absolutely needs to do. But we have the amazing Dr. Tony with us. And we are moving into, we finished Isaiah. Then we did a little different something last week. We talked about all saints and all souls and all Hal's Eve, just to kind of break it up and give you something different. So now we are moving into Jeremiah and Lamentations. We're going to actually do those together because they're fairly short books of the Bible, and um, they kind of go hand in hand, as Dr. Tony will talk to us about. So welcome, Tony. So glad you're here. Thanks. Glad to see you. Let's start off in prayer, and I'm just going to do what you do in the Baptist Church, which is to just pray and not use the Book of Common Prayer. So the Lord be with you. Also with you. Dear Lord, I'm so grateful to be with these listeners today, and of course with Tony. Let this be a fruitful conversation where we learn and inwardly digest that which, which, with which we need to know. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Tell us about these two books of the Bible, Tony. Well, why don't we start with Lamentations? It's far shorter. The book of Lamentations is exactly what the name suggests. It is five poems of lament. What occasions the poems is the destruction of the temple in 587 BCE by the Babylonians. And as you might expect, the the poems are full of sorrow. The loss of the temple was the greatest crisis for the Jews of, of this generation. There are five poems. In the oldest writings of the rabbis, the rabbis say, we don't know who wrote these poems. They consider them anonymous. Later, they begin to be associated with Jeremiah. You begin to see in the rabbinic writings the lamentations of Jeremiah. So interestingly, in the Hebrew Bible, they're in the writings, that last section of the Bible. But because they begin to be associated with Jeremiah, The Greek translators moved them into the prophets where they are in our Bible. The English translators followed what they did in the Septuagint. Uh, The uh, poems are all either 22 verses or multiples of 22 verses. That's how many letters there are in the Hebrew alphabet. And four of the poems are acrostics. Remember in grade school, when Mother's Day was coming up, we took the word mother and we wrote down the page, M-O-T-H-E-R. And then we wrote a little poem starting each line with those letters. That's what an acrostic is. The first letter of each line forms a pattern. In this case, the acrostics follow the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, A verse begins with Aleph and then Bet and then Gimel and then Dalet and so forth. So either one verse or in one instance, three verses. Uh, one of the points, interestingly, is not an acrostic, but it still has that kind of 22 verses. And, and the poems are like, they will remind you of the Psalms of Lament. They express the writer's sorrow over the destruction of the temple, both personal sorrow 
and corporate sorrow. This is such a devastating loss for the Jewish people. And yet, as we might remember from the Psalms of Lament, even in the midst of this great despair, the the poet or the prophet finds hope. The Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. So, Hope in the midst of sorrow, overall tone is certainly sorrowful. And uh, one of my favorite hymns is Great is Thy Faithfulness. And uh, in that wonderful refrain, morning by morning, new mercies I see. That comes from the book of Lamentations, that God's mercies are new every morning. Okay, so much to unpack in that. So the first thing I was thinking about is I'm so glad you reminded us that this is poetry. I think often we forget that scripture can be poetry. Um, I think we look at it like as the word of God, which it is. I'm, I'm not saying that, but that there's so many different types of writing in the Bible. And I yes. think that's like super important to remember. And also like we as people, we all kind of gravitate to different kind of writing, right? So Murray, my husband is a poet, you know, and so something like Lamentations might really gravitate towards him, you know, where some people want the history, you know, and so I I think that's super important. I loved how you thought about like going back to grade school and, and so that's just like such a great way to picture it in your mind, you know, if you're a visual thinker, you know, which I am, I need to see it. So I can, that helps me a lot. And then I think also we forget that like some of these hymns that we love so much are rooted in the Old Testament. I think we just want to put it all in Jesus, you know, and as amazing as Jesus is, but there is this deep history of the Old Testament that I think we just can sometimes be like, eh, I don't know. I mean, it makes me want to preach sometimes a lot more from the Old Testament than maybe other preachers, because I want to explore that great history that is definitely a part of who we are. Well, it took took the, the early church almost 400 years to kind of finalize the canon. So at any point along the way, they could have said, you know, we don't really need those old books, the the Hebrew Bible. Right. we, we could just be, we could just have the New Testament, but time after time after time, the collective wisdom of the church was, nope, that's part of who we are. And if we don't know how we got here, then we fail to understand something about our identity. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. For that. Well, let's talk about Jeremiah because there's a lot to talk about. Um, Jeremiah is, um, his prophecy takes place. But by the time he begins his prophecy, 627 BCE, the northern kingdom of Israel has been gone for almost 100 years. The southern kingdom of Judah is all that's left of what we think of as God's people. And for the 40 years that Jeremiah is a prophet, Judah is constantly a vassal state, a little bit of Egypt, but mostly of Babylon. In 597, the Babylonians begin a series of three deportations. 
It's the group that's taken away in 597 to whom Jeremiah writes the letter of a letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29. Ten years later, uh, the Babylonians come back. They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They take King Zedekiah. They force him to watch the murder of his nobles and all of his sons. And then they put out his eyes. So that would be the last thing they see. And they take him blinded in chains to Babylon in the beginning of the Babylonian exile. So it's an anguishing kind of political backdrop. Um, Jeremiah comes from a little town called Anathoth, which is suburb to Jerusalem. It's about three miles from Jerusalem. He never marries. He never has children. He devotes his life to, to speaking the word of Yahweh. And remember, we, we've said the prophets are not so much predictors as proclaimers. So he gives his life to proclaiming Yahweh's message. Um, interesting things about the book of Jeremiah by volume. It's the longest book, not only in the prophets, but in all of the Hebrew Bible. Last time we said Isaiah has the most chapters. But Jeremiah actually has more words than any other book in the Hebrew Bible. Oh, so I was wrong that they're fairly short. It's Lamentations. Lamentations. You were right about Lamentations. Um, you know, I think I probably assumed Psalms was the longest book because it has 150 chapters. But by volume, it's Jeremiah, Genesis, and then Psalms. So uh, he something while we're, I'm thinking about this. So what... Jeremiah and Lamentations, and I think you could say this about other books of the Bible, like they don't feel as popular as as the Psalms or Isaiah or, you know, the ones we, you know, just kind of gravitate towards. Do you have a a thought of of why that is? Is it because they're in the very back of the Old Testament? No. Lamentations, I think it's because they're pretty, it's pretty bleak. I mean, I, I cherry pick the two verses that are not bleak <laughs> out of the whole book. Jeremiah may be one of those that you know more Jeremiah than you think you know, and maybe that'll come out in a few minutes. Um, I think both of the churches I have served full time, we gave something to our graduates that said, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord to give you a future with hope. That's Jeremiah. That comes from the letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29. I like that. It's probably more in us than we sort of realize. Yeah. And, and and Alan and I will take the next couple of weeks um, to dig in more to Jeremiah and Lamentations. But that just kind of popped in my head because it doesn't feel like one of the like more popular um, either one. So and we'll probably say the same thing about Ezekiel, but we'll talk about that next time. Um, so Jeremiah is the longest. He gives us more autobiographical information than any other prophet. And Jeremiah represents the greatest distance from when things were good during his prophetic career, they were really good. And then when they got bad, they got really bad. I mean, he he's been in prophesying for five years when King Josiah rediscovers the book of the law in the temple. That's a huge thing. It leads to nationwide revival, um, a new emphasis on faithfulness to Yahweh. That's a time of political stability. Josiah is king for 40 years. So you have that at one extreme. 
But by the time Jeremiah concludes his life, really, his prophetic career, uh, Judah no longer exists. The temple has been destroyed and the blinded, childless king has been carried off into exile. It's a so you just get the highs and lows of life. It's dramatic. Yeah, think about uh, David's words when Saul and Jonathan are killed, how the mighty have fallen. So like, like the other major prophets, Ezekiel and Isaiah, Jeremiah narrates his, his call experience. Um, it's very touching to me. God says, before you were conceived, I knew who you were. When I formed you in the womb, even before you were born, I appointed you and consecrated you to be a prophet. And then Jeremiah reminds us of Moses. Like Moses, Jeremiah says, I'm too young. I don't speak well. I'm not articulate. But God says to Jeremiah the same thing God had said to Moses. I will be with you. And God touches Jeremiah's mouth, symbolizing the putting of the prophetic message into his mouth. And so his call is very meaningful in its way. And then at the same time, his prophetic career, his his message was ignored or argued against or rebuffed or he was punished for it so many times that he has times when he questions his call. Um, He says to God, you you enticed me into this. Eugene Peterson in the message uh, paraphrases, you pushed me into this prophetic work. And my paraphrase might be, you bullied me into this. Um, but whatever Jeremiah's frustrations are, and I think those of us in ministry have had those days when we think, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? Yeah. And, and Jeremiah says, when I say I'm going to quit, I'm not going to speak the name of Yahweh anymore. But as soon as I think that, there is a fire shut up in my bones and I cannot hold it in. His calling is absolutely irrevocable. He cannot escape it, even when he wants to. Right. I mean, like, and I'm so glad you, I am not comparing myself to Jeremiah. I'm not a prophet. I look at myself in a different way. But I I love this special relationship between God and Jeremiah. And I, I think again, like we don't, we think about God and Moses, we think about God and Abraham, you know, and I love that you're bringing out how special this relationship was. But I mean, even like this fall, I, as a minister, like had a moment where I wanted to crawl in a hole and die and like never come out again. And I was like, where are you, God? I don't want to do this anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. and that's like our human emotion. So I can really identify with Jeremiah in that. But I also can identify with Jeremiah in the fact that like, God's not letting me give up. You know, God's not letting me forget this calling. And that's not just me and you that are ministers. I think that's anybody, right? What a great metaphor. There is a fire in our bones. Won't go out, you know. Yeah, but it's so easy, the human nature side of us. Yeah, sure. sure, sure. I appreciate people like Jeremiah who who share that human nature, right? That even even people who are prophets had those moments of self-doubt. 
and I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm and like us, you know, that's triggered many times by external circumstances. Jeremiah is known as the suffering prophet or the weeping prophet. He's rejected. He's ridiculed. He's arrested. He's put in stocks. He's left in an abandoned cistern. His enemies plan his death. It doesn't come to fruition. Uh, he's banned from the temple because he dares to call the priests to, to, to true faithfulness. They kick him out of the church. Uh, when he takes his message to the king because the king doesn't like it, he burns the scroll, you know, kind of public humiliation. So those are the things that 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 make his career difficult. He He prophesies in a difficult time. He sees the exile coming, but that's not the message that people want to hear. Yeah. In the overview, we talked about prophetic actions. Uh, Jeremiah is commanded not to marry, which, of course, means he can't have children. He's also commanded not to participate in any marriage feasts or any funeral rituals. And that symbolizes that when the exile comes, there won't be weddings and there won't be people to bury the dead. It's going to be really bad. But the effect on that, of Jer- think about that, that isolates Jeremiah from the community and from the most important communal rituals that these people enjoyed. So uh, he, he feels loneliness very often. Um, other prophetic actions, he goes to the pot shirt gaze and he takes a clay pot and he smashes it on the ground. But then he talks about how the right potter could make that vessel whole again. And in that way, Yahweh wants to take our brokenness and make us whole again. Um, he goes He goes out wearing a yoke like oxen would wear to symbolize the impending exile that, that, that Israel or Judah is going to wear the yoke of Babylon. And Hane, uh, Hananiah, who is Jeremiah's sort of rival prophet, breaks that wooden yoke and says, no, you're wrong. That's the wrong message. Well, then Jeremiah comes back wearing an iron yoke, saying God's message is unbreakable, and this is the message of Yahweh. Um, And then, lastly, I want to mention um, Jeremiah buying a piece of land. That seems so innocuous, but when he does that, the Babylonian army has surrounded Jerusalem. The city's about to fall. The temple's about to be destroyed. Everybody knows it. And Jeremiah goes out and buys property. You see the message. One day we're going to have a future in this place again. God has not forgotten Jerusalem. God has not forgotten the people. And I think I also mentioned in the overview the ability of the prophets to adapt their message. Jeremiah spent most of his career speaking a message of impending doom and a call to repentance. But once the disaster is literally at the gate, the people need a different word. They need a word of hope. And and Jeremiah delivers that to them. So it points to the adaptability of the prophet, and it also points to the nature of Yahweh. The sovereign God is entitled to give the people the right message at the right time. If we need to repent, God is entitled to say, straighten up. But when we need a word of hope, God in God's mercy is entitled to offer that, and the prophet reflects that. Um, and I have to say again, this reward and retribution theology that we've seen over and over, rewarding of the faithful, the punishment of the disobedient, that you're going to see some of that in Jeremiah, even though Jesus later sets that aside. But even in Jeremiah, Jeremiah stresses 
that whatever God does to chasten Judah is redempted. It is designed to cause the people to return to God. The word repent means turn around. And there's this beautiful sermon in Jeremiah 3 and 4 known as the return sermon. He uses the word return 16 times. Um, He stresses God's love for Judah, uh, that God considers Judah the bride of God. Um, Unlike the the popular theology of his day, uh, after the exile, you know, people said, we're separated from God because God's back in Jerusalem. Jeremiah says, no, God is where you are. Um, But maybe most significantly, so so in some ways, Jeremiah's theology is very traditional, the sovereignty of God, that's very traditional. But this innovation, this tenderness, and especially three things. One is in a time when Judaism put tremendous emphasis on external rituals, circumcision, sacrifice, ritual purity, Jeremiah says, no, what God wants is interchange that what's going on in your heart is more important than what you do to your body. So in this striking image, Jeremiah says, circumcise your heart. Remove the foreskin of your heart. That's what God is interested in. It was also commonly assumed what I'll call a corporate accountability. Uh, All through the Old Testament, the assumption is that when an individual, especially a leader, the king, the patriarch of the family, if they sin, the king sins, the nation suffers. If the patriarch sins, the family feels those negative consequences. And so they had a proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So what the father did affects the children negatively. And Jeremiah comes along and says, when God's Vision is accomplished after we return from exile. No longer will they say that the father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth have been set on end. It it shifts from this corporate responsibility to it's what you do that matters. It's your relationship with Yahweh that matters. And these innovations are, in in my view, a, a redefinition of Judaism. What, what, how did Judaism begin with the covenant with Abraham? And Jeremiah says, in those days, there will be a new covenant. Thus says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with my people, not written on tablets of stone, but written on their hearts. And the old covenant was broken, but this covenant, the people will gladly obey No longer will people say, know the Lord, because everyone will know me from the greatest to the least. And I will forgive your sins and remember them no more. In this beautiful vision of the restored community, the mercy of God is so great. It is as if our sins never even happen. Not even God will remember them. It is absolutely breathtaking and so there's no way to, to overstate the significance of that in Judaism, but but you can feel it. We are setting the stage for Jesus. I was just about to say, it feels like we're right there, like letting go of all this old garb and setting up for the new covenant, which is Jesus. And like, it just feels like also like the perfect placement in the Bible as well. Like 
because we're getting towards the end of the Old Testament and people need to change their hearts and their thoughts and um, and letting go of that old garb. So when we talk about the sufferings of Jeremiah in the crucible of his own suffering, on the night before he knows he's going to die, Jesus himself dips into Jeremiah and says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. The vision of Jeremiah is in the mind of Jesus on the eve of the cross. Isn't that amazing? I love that. I love that. I think that's like the perfect place to end because it 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 we're always like thinking where when are we going to get to the New Testament? But you know what? Like some parts of me is like we're kind of already in it, you know. Um, and I think Jeremiah is one of those prophets that helps us. Absolutely. Think about that. And what is the new covenant? What is the new regime? So, Tony, as always, thank you so much. What a joy. Help us learn so much. And listeners, as always, remember that we love you, but most importantly, God does. 